Hello and welcome to the Portfolio Intelligence Podcast. I'm John Bryson, Head of Investment Consultant at John Hancock Investment Management and your host. The goal of this podcast is to help investment professionals deliver better outcomes for their clients and their practice. Topics we'll address include advisor business building ideas, capital market updates, the latest trends in portfolio construction, and investment insights from veteran portfolio managers across our global network. Now, the Coronas the Coronavirus Aid, Relief, and Economic Security Act, better known as the CARES Act, was signed into law by President Trump on March 27, 2020, and it's authorized more than $2 trillion to battle COVID-19 and its economic impacts. And new legislation continues to come out of Washington on a very frequent basis. Now, it's not possible to cover all the aspects of the CARES Act in a short podcast, but we want to address some of the most important aspects impacting investment professionals. To this end, I've invited two guests to discuss the act. Today, I'm joined by two colleagues, Chris Frank, head of Defined Contribution Consulting for the Benefits Consulting Group in John Hancock's Retirement Plan Services Division, and Ed Jaystrom, Director of Financial Planning and Certified Financial Planner at the $1.5 billion Registered Investment Advisor, Heritage Financial. Gentlemen, welcome to the call. Good afternoon, John. Good afternoon, Ed. Thank you for inviting us on, John. Thank you, John. Thank you, Chris. All right, Chris, let's start with you. Can you give us an overview of the CARES Act? Sure. So as you mentioned, this was a $2.2 trillion economic relief package. It was the third and also the largest legislative initiative to address COVID-19. Now, the act itself contained a number of health-related provisions, such as paid sick leave and insurance coverage for coronavirus testing. But I think most people will associate this with the assistance that are provided for American workers and their families, i.e. the economic impact payments or stimulus checks. I'm sure uh, you know someone that got a $1,200 check um, in the last couple of months. Um, also, you might know people who have been laid off and um, in addition to their state unemployment, received uh, enhanced unemployment of $600. Um, and also, you, you have to look at the focus on small businesses. Um, there was a program, um, the Paycheck Protection Program, that helped small businesses uh, upon application you know, fund their normal day-to-day uh, -day costs, um, including, um, you know, any costs associated with retirement plans that they may sponsor. And then, of course, there was there was aid for state, local, and, and tribal governments. But I, I think what separated this particular um, relief package from the prior relief packages is that it also contained um, three retirement-related provisions. And those are the provisions that have had people like myself and anyone involved with retirement plans um, scrambling, <laughs> to, for lack of a better term, for the last few months. And um, these three retirement provisions um, uh, were a new in-service distribution with less restrictions and more favorable tax treatment, um, the coronavirus-related distribution, or what we've, we've now called the CRD, um, the relaxing of qualified plan loan rules. So 
right now plan loans are restricted in terms of of amount um, and those limits were, were were enhanced and then you had the waiver of required minimum distributions from defined contribution plans and IRAs for 2020 and those are those are distributions that are provided uh, mostly for individuals who have left employment are over age 70 and a half and still have a balance in an IRA or or a DC plan. So these um, again um, have required service providers like John Hancock um, to address from a legal and interpretation standpoint uh, but also from an operational standpoint because these provisions were effective immediately. They weren't okay you need to have this into play by 2021. No, these are provisions that were effective in uh, 2020. And in fact, um, they're going to expire by the end of the year. So it took a lot of planning by a lot of people. We're still learning things about these provisions. Um, but they are things that advisors really need to hone in on, um, you know, because they do affect plans and plan assets they affect individuals and um, it, it it's been difficult for some to navigate because you could be you could be a client or or, or one of our companies that we work with that maybe wasn't impacted immediately by COVID-19 but over time um, as it became uh, more financially stressful uh, now you're starting to see some of the effects and maybe now you're just starting to um, possibly furlough people or lay people off and now this is where these provisions are really kicking in because um, there are more and more people that may need to tap into their retirement plan savings in order to survive and the the, the sad and, and, and maddening part of this is they don't know when they're going to be able to start putting their lives back together. They're not, in some cases, they're not promised a job um, when, when things go back to some kind of new normal. And so, you know, their retirement savings might be the, you know, their key income um, for the next six to 12 months. So this is where you, you not only have to be smart about guidance, but you have to be incredibly thoughtful because you know you're these are individuals where this is you know these are life-changing things and so um, with, with that I think I'll stop because I know I know um, Ed's probably got something to add on this as well yeah Ed from your standpoint uh, someone who's working with uh, retail clients what are some of the high-level components of the act that you think people need to think through so first, I would definitely emphasize what Chris mentioned in terms of the somewhat unique nature of this law with its effectiveness being almost immediate. There really wasn't any grace period for advisors, for tax professionals, or the people that develop financial planning software or tax software in addition to custodians and other service providers 
to really understand all aspects of the law and roll it out. So that's been a challenge from the get-go. What I would add to Chris's comments is that the act continues to evolve because there's clarifications and procedural modifications from all the different government departments and agencies that have been tasked with interpreting the law and implementing it. So even though the law was passed a few months ago, I think we're still adapting to it. And I would expect that really to continue for the rest of the year for all of us that advise clients to find how to give the best advice to them as the act continues to change during the course of the year. I think the, the key elements that come out of it from an individual perspective, you know, the first and foremost is that personal tax deadlines have been extended. So that's given a lot of people a, a reprieve temporarily until July 15th in terms of either filing their taxes or paying taxes that are due. So that's been something that's been in the news for a lot of individuals and for anybody who owes taxes a little bit of a relief. The other elements on the personal front, on the individual front, relate to recovery rebates, which Chris mentioned, you know, if someone receives $1,200 recently, that's part of those recovery rebates. There's been expansion of unemployment assistance and there's also been some relief for mortgages and for student loans. So wrapping back to the recovery rebates or stimulus payments that some people are referring to, this is a tax credit for individuals up to $2,400 for married couples and up to $1,200 for single persons, plus the potential for $500 per child under the age of 17. There is a AGI threshold over which these credits start to phase out. For a married couple filing jointly, it's 150,000 of AGI. For a head of household, it's 112,500. And for all other filers, it's 75,000. The tax credit gets reduced by $50 for every thousand over those thresholds. From an advisor perspective, there's not much to do proactively to get these recovery rebates. But what I would say is that for anyone in a special circumstance where uh, perhaps their filing status changed over the last couple of years, perhaps they hadn't filed a tax return, if they moved and they changed their address, anything that could cause a hiccup in getting that rebate I would really recommend that that client or an advisor with those type of clients revisit the IRS website on this topic because that site that initially was really missing a lot of key information early on has now been expanded with quite a few questions and answers and really addresses a lot of the things that have come to light in the last couple months dealing with making these payments. The key takeaway with that is if you're going to the IRS site, don't search for stimulus payments or recovery payments. The key word to really find the accurate information is economic impact payment. That's what the IRS is referring to, and that's where you'll find the key resources for that. So that, that, most now, individuals... 
ahead. So I just wanted to jump in because I, I thought you brought, up, you brought up a really good point there, not only for the clients, because many of the clients that the financial professionals we deal with have probably have um, higher income and aren't receiving a check or a small check, but their children uh, certainly could be in that situation. And they would maybe pass this information on to them to make sure that they're going to the IRS website and finding out what's available and make sure that they're getting what they've, uh, they deserve essentially. Certainly. Yeah. Uh, young adults, um, children of clients who might not receive the benefit, depending on the tax filing situation, the children could be eligible. Uh, there could be instances where someone who is, you know, looking at their income from the past year might be eligible under one circumstance, but not under the other. So if it, it's worth checking for someone who's maybe on the fence or not sure about their circumstances. You know, this is one of those planning opportunities for advisors that's relatively low hanging fruit in terms of making an interpretation for a client and getting them the right information. And now that the resources are more widely available from the IRS, whereas a couple months ago they really weren't, uh, it's a little bit easier to maybe make a determination if something needs clarification. You know, anecdotally, I have a, a good friend who got married in uh, October of 2019, and uh, the friend was asking me specifically about this payment in regards to qualification, and one spouse definitively would not have been eligible as an individual, but the other spouse with lower income and, and lower AGI seemed like maybe they would be. So the question was, you know, which tax return are they going to be able to use? And is the IRS going to be looking at the fact that they're now married? So it, it's instances like that where um, checking up on the circumstances could, could maybe get you a clear answer or not. And unfortunately, in, in this friend's case, it, it seems like they're not going to, to get the, the stimulus payment that the IRS is actually uh, looking into what their income is in uh, the, the subsequent year, not the, the previous year. But, you know, it's, it's the type of question that advisors might have out there. Yeah, and worth looking into deeper. Okay, what, what else did you want to add? I cut you off a little bit there. I, I think in terms of the economic impact payment, you know, that, that's really it, other than researching any very kind of one-off particular circumstances that, that require attention that, like I said, searching the IRS website in, in that area should provide the resources that you need. The other elements for individuals where advisors might need to look up more information or really help a client that, that I see coming forward are the enhanced unemployment compensation benefits, which expanded benefits for a longer period of time, for greater dollars, it reduced the waiting period. So it's really designed to provide relief to individuals who have not been able to get employment or lost employment because of the circumstances that we're under. I think the most interesting aspect of the enhanced unemployment compensation are benefits for individuals who weren't previously covered by the unemployment system. So self-employed individuals, certain contractors, those who you know, weren't paying into the system or covered by the system now have options to get unemployment benefits under what's generally being called a pandemic unemployment assistance. So that's very good news for quite a few clients uh, that 
that I work with that uh, I'm sure many advisors work with who are self-employed or otherwise, you know, file a Schedule C or, or 1099 income. The kind of good news, bad news trade-off is that with this additional benefit that's being provided, it's more complicated to file for unemployment benefits such that depending on where you fall in the system, you need to be very careful with which benefit you apply for. Many states have, within their systems, made it such that if you attempt to apply for multiple unemployment benefits at the same time, either intentionally or inadvertently, you could be effectively canceled out. So for anyone who might have a unique employment circumstance, particularly those who are self-employed, and looking to claim benefits, it's really important that you follow your state's guidelines as to which program to apply for before you just haphazardly take a shotgun approach. I think that's one of the key takeaways for any advisors working with those type of clients is to be very careful in guiding them as to which program to apply for. And hopefully the state in which you're operating in has that, that guidance online to be able to do it. One of the other elements of this that comes to light is that, you know, traditionally we don't think of students or young individuals being eligible or even considering applying for unemployment benefits. But this year, there could be a whole group of young people, uh, college age, maybe even younger, people who were expecting to go into a summer job, a paid internship, something that gives them, you know, cash in hand for living expenses or to roll into next semester's, you know, cost of school. And if those students are wrapping up their academic programs, a lot of them finishing now at home, and that summer job or summer internship is no longer there, if they were relying on that money or their household relied on that money, there potentially is the option, it seems like, under this pandemic unemployment assistance program for those individuals to apply to get benefits because they've lost that paying job opportunity. There isn't anything specific in the unemployment benefits that excludes students or excludes you from a certain age. And with this expanded unemployment benefits, it, you don't even necessarily have had to have an employment record before to get the benefits. So for those persons that are relying on that money that are having difficulty lining up a summer job to get it, uh, it's important to know that this could be available to that population of people that we wouldn't normally think about being eligible for those benefits. Now you the, mentioned- The last two areas, go ahead. No, I was just gonna uh, say you had mentioned earlier student loans and it seems to tie in uh, to what you're talking about. Um, the fact that whether it's a student job or a student loan, um, there's some flexibility. And you also mentioned mortgages. I wanted to see what you had to say about those two. Yeah, I think those are the next two provisions that come to mind when looking at the benefits and reprieve for individuals under the CARES Act are related to, to mortgages and student loans. And in both instances, for federally backed mortgages and federally backed student loans, there's fairly good relief available to people who need it. Uh, on the student loan side, what's happened is that the interest rate on federal student loans has been set to zero from March 13th through September 30th. 
and effectively those payments that otherwise would have been due um, are, are suspended through September 30th. So no interest is going to accrue and, and nothing's due. For mortgages that are federally backed, there's the opportunity for individuals to contact the loan servicer and request a forbearance for up to 180 days. The, the rub, so to speak, with both of these provisions is that they really apply to federally backed loans. So if you don't have a federally backed loan or if you don't have a federally backed student loan, these rules necessarily aren't applicable to you. The, the good news is that many lenders, whether it's a mortgage or a student loan or an auto loan or some other non-secured loan, you know, lenders are clearly aware of what's going on. It's very costly and timely to foreclose on someone, to go after someone. Lenders don't want to be, um, you know, the, the bad person left over when all this is said and done. So even if you don't have a federally backed loan, many lenders are offering the same type of opportunities. It might just require a little bit more digging to get the information about your specific loan to find out what's available to you. So that's an area where an advisor could certainly assist a client in dissecting the options um, if a, a lender does provide some sort of relief, interpreting that relief to make sure it really does make sense. You know, are you simply skipping payments? Are you adding payments to the end of the term? You know, what's exactly going on? Uh, those are the areas that I could see an advisor having some value add in terms of making heads and tails of what's really happening to a loan in terms of anything that, that gets changed with loan provisions. Okay, great. Now, Chris, I want to come to you. One thing specifically on the student loans. I think there's some options that employers uh, have that they could make available to clients. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So I think it's under Section 2206 of the Act. Um, it allows an employer to contribute to an employee's student loan at no cost to the employee, and that's for an amount up to $5,250. And the, there's a tax break that's provided to the employer, so they get a benefit there. Uh, it also, that, that just say it's $5,250, that's not counted towards income for the employee, and it's not counted towards payroll taxes. So again, benefits to both parties. Um, and, and again, this you know, could be a good benefit for, for an employer to provide. There's obviously some cost involved. Uh, but again, it's another, it's another focus area. You know, you know, Ed mentioned student loans, mortgages, and um, the, the, the student loan piece is is not something that just came up because of COVID-19. Um, this has come up in the past, and and people have tried various ways of bringing student loan payments into play. Some of them involving retirement plans, some of them outside retirement plans, because I think w when you look at the sort of the work population, you know, you're you. I think good employers recognize that there's a number of new employees, young employees that are saddled with a lot of student loan debt. And so they're trying to get creative 
Um, other people are, in the industry are trying to get creative with helping these employers reach these employees um, through some type of student loan repayment so they don't feel that they cannot start contributing to their retirement plans. And so it's a matter of either helping with student loan payments or providing some retirement plan contribution um, on behalf of that employee who's continuing to make student loan repayments so that they get that head start on long-term savings. Yeah, it's, it's great to see that employers recognize that if an individual is behind on one goal, it's going to negatively impact any other goals that they have. And that feels like it's in the that's in the realm of, of this uh, understanding. Um, I want to stay on retirement plans because many of the advisors that we work with mm-hmm. um, have individual clients or they might have clients who are small business owners. Uh, and they can help them with certain components of this. But it's really important for financial advisors to also understand what options are available for individuals back at their employer. And I know you work with employers and you started touching upon this, but maybe can you stress for the advisor that might say, hey, I don't really do a lot of 401k plans, so I don't need to worry about this, kind of highlight what they should really understand? Yeah, so I kind of put them into two, two sections, John. So before the CARES Act was even released, we were seeing a lot of um, employers um, questioning what they could do with their retirement plan or how was their retirement plan affected um, by things like layoffs, by, by things such as um, financial constraints within the company. So we've, we've worked with clients before the CARES Act even came out to answer questions on suspending employer contributions or um, that that seemed to be the biggest one. But now we're looking at things like, um, can we add a second loan to the loan program? Because with the CARES Act, we want someone who already has an existing loan to be able to take advantage of the the relaxed rules um, with, with the CARES Act. Um, people are even getting creative with things like um, in-service withdrawals. You know, can we allow people to get at their money earlier than later? Um, we've seen we've seen um, people um, examine um, what happens to their plan if they lay off a certain amount of people. So you've got rules in in the retirement industry like like partial plan terminations. You know, what if, you know, you have to lay off 30% of your population or, or, or more? You know, what, what does that mean to me, the employer? What does that mean to people who have plan accounts? And um, so those are the things that we've been, we've been doing. We've been looking at the impact, um, which is, to me, sort of unrelated to the CARES Act retirement provisions, but then we've also been interpreting the CARES Act provisions. And the, the, the one that came up initially, and, and Ed made a great point about how we're still learning about what these provisions mean, is who is eligible for a CRD or COVID-19 distribution? So if you look at the language of the CARES Act, it says 
it, it uses the word employee and it talks about self-certification. So, you know, if you're if you if your legal mind goes at this and, I, and I'm a lawyer, I'm like, well, if I if I take a strict interpretation, right, right to me, this looks like it just is eligible. Uh, um, active employees are the only people eligible or people who have been furloughed because they're still technically considered employees. But somebody who terminates shouldn't be eligible for this distribution. So that was just kind of a, a narrow interpretation. But then, you know, other providers and even John Hancock, we've said, well, no, I'm sure the spirit of the law was to allow anyone affected. So terminated employees should be able to take a CRD as well. Well, with the CRD, there's no proof required that you're that you're either, you know, um, affected, you, you've got COVID-19, a family member has COVID-19, or you've been um, adversely affected financially. So everyone is sending these in. It's self-certification, no proof needed. Well, now we're starting to get questions from people like, hey, what if I made a mistake? Like, what if I find out three weeks after we gave somebody a distribution that they're not a qualified individual, as that term is defined under the CARES Act? Am I on the hook now? Like, was I allowed to, to rely on on that self-certification? So it, it's amazing the types of questions we get, either related to the CARES Act or related to um, situations caused by COVID-19. And that's kind of where the guidance is coming in. Like, how do we how do we keep people like in compliance? How do we keep them sort of focused uh, on whether they need the CARES Act provisions or not? Because we have a bunch of clients that aren't really affected, so they didn't add the CARES Act provisions. They were mostly voluntary provisions. They weren't mandatory. And so this is what we've been spending our time doing for the last two months. And I'm sure all our advisor partners are doing the same thing, too, because the last thing you want to see is that at the end of 2020, when most of the CARES Act pieces go away, that you only have a shell of the retirement plan you had at the beginning of the year. So there's there's a lot of back and forth that's required. Now, bottom line, if an employer is 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 experiencing financial difficulty, you know, they have to do what's right for that company. Um, I would say that if you're looking at a hierarchy of action steps, chances are you're going to start with things like an employer contribution before you start furloughing or laying off individuals. So if you're suspending or eliminating the employer contribution, that's less money going into the plan. Um, and um, if you're allowing CRDs and relaxed loan rules, that's more money coming out of the plan. So like I said, at the end of the year, you might see a, a totally different retirement plan than you than you had on, on March 1st. Okay. And Ed, for, in your conversations with clients, what are you talking to them about what they need to know about their options with a 401k plan or even their RIAs? IRAs, excuse me. I, I think the, the very first thing that we learned in regards to timing and retirement plans related to the tax filing and payment deadline extension 
to July 15th, which also pushed the IRA as well as the health savings account contribution deadline for the 2019 tax year also to July 15th. So for those individuals who are, are trying to save or would like to save, they got a little bit more time to do so so they could kick the can down the road a little bit in making their contributions. I think that's kind of relatively minor in the grand scheme of things if we're looking more big picture at those who maybe have uh, lost their jobs or who are uh, small business owners who are worrying about some of the issues that Chris mentioned in terms of, you know, do I, do I still fund my retirement plan? Do I still, you know, do a, do a profit share? What loan provisions can I amend? So some of the things that, that we've been looking at are, are the same that, that Chris mentioned in, in those ends in terms of is there something structurally about a plan that can be amended? Uh, really, it's an opportune time for advisors to connect with third-party administrators or other experts in those fields to really reestablish those centers of influence to help clients if they haven't already. More boots on the ground, some of the things we've been thinking about are for self-employed individuals who might use a, a SEP IRA or a solo 401k who haven't done their 2019 taxes yet because they haven't had to and uh, even beyond July might be on extension until October, if they would otherwise be able to make a contribution to a retirement plan for the 2019 tax year to get a deduction to lower their tax liability, but they're worried about cash flow because of what's been happening really in 2020 or since, you know, maybe March 20, 2020, something that they might consider is making the contribution to get the deduction in 2019. And then if they need to take the money out in 2020, using that CRD, that coronavirus related distribution that Chris mentioned to get the money back. So that might mean not investing the funds within that retirement plan, um, but potentially using that income tax leverage for some year-to-year -year savings, particularly if it looks like 2020 could be a much lower tax burden year than, than 2019. So that, that's something that we've been looking at with, with those clients. Uh, for a lot of other clients, you know, considering whether they should take money out or not under the, the CRD or some other provision, and how might they return the money in the future or not. Uh, something that I've been looking into is for someone who does take that, that CRD, the tax liability for that withdrawal automatically is spread out over 2020, 2021, and 2022. So three years to pay the, the tax liability, if any, from taking that CRD. You can return funds within those years to basically offset the, the tax liability, so you would have to more than likely file an amended tax return. But something that you can do is elect to include all of that tax liability in one year in 2020. So you might want to do that if you knew that income was, was way down in 2020. What I'm not sure of and where I'm waiting for more guidance is when does that election need to be made and will that be a moving target? So if someone takes 
a distribution from a retirement plan in 2020 using the CRD, and they're doing some income tax projections. They're talking to their business advisors later this year. They're looking at, you know, is their business returning to normal or not? Does it make sense to spread that liability out over three years or take a hit in 2020? When does that clock stop ticking? Does that election need to be made by 1231, by April 15th, by October of, of next year? Uh, you know, I'm not really sure, and I don't know where the guidance will, will fall on that. So certainly something to be aware of is if someone is thinking about making that election, making sure that they know in the future when that, that clock stops in terms of um, at what point do they have to make a decision about the flexibility or not spreading that liability around. Okay. So a lot to digest. Um, I would ask both of you, are there any other issues you think investment professionals need to pay attention to that you haven't covered so far? Hmm. Yeah, actually. Well, I, we didn't touch on. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Chris. I was going to say we didn't touch on, you know, any of the, the charitable giving aspects of the, the CARES Act yet. I think that this might be um, maybe a secondary item. You know, it's, it's tough to talk about charitable giving, uh, estate planning strategies, giving money to the next generation when, you know, everyone's really worried about how the, the market is doing and, and what's going on in the world. So in, you know, practical experience the last few months, charitable giving and some of these other strategies that might be a good time to look at them, hasn't necessarily been top of mind for a lot of people. But for those clients that are interested in charitable giving, that, that do have big charitable giving plans, there are a few changes to be aware of. You know, the minor change is that there's an above-the-line deduction for taxpayers now of $300 so that you don't need to itemize on your tax return in order to get that deduction. But, you know, big picture, $300, not really going to move the needle for anybody. The bigger change potentially is that for 2020, for those who do itemize and who give to charity, the cap on how much you can deduct is increased so that the limit on cash gifts to a charity is moved from a maximum of 60% of AGI to 100% of AGI. So in theory, someone could eliminate their tax liability entirely with charitable gifts. So probably a very modest number of clients that might be doing that, but for those who are thinking strategically, that um, could be an opportune time if someone was planning a large gift and if it made sense combined with other tax planning goals. Great. And Chris, what were you going to add? Yeah, I was just going to say, I think the, the the provision that is still giving everyone sort of um, a head-scratching moment is re the required minimum distribution provision. So you had, you had the Act waive RMDs for 2020, but you had a bunch of people who took the RMD earlier in the year because it was technically their 2019 RMD that was allowed to be paid by 4-1 of this year. And so, you know, there's a lot of back and forth. Well, why, why did, why did, the, why did 
the legislative body waive RMDs? Well, they did it because they were afraid that um, the uh, account balance would be depleted more some than usual because the market had gone down in the first quarter, but the RMD is based on a 1231 account balance. And so why force somebody to take a distribution? Well, there's a big debate in the industry, and Ed's probably been part of it, uh, where some people have said, well, yeah, but people count on this RMD. People, you know, 75, 80 who are getting an RMD count on getting this RMD, and now you're going to, what, make them have to go and get it, like make an election, where another side is saying, wait, you mean we don't have to take it? take this distribution, we'd rather keep it in the plan. So, you know, there's been some guidance on this where um, the, these payments were allowed to be rolled back into the plan or an IRA. Um, so that that's, the that's I think, the provision to me that's still unsettling. And now you've got proposed legislation that might be addressing 2019 RMD payments. And Ed, I don't know if you've seen this with 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 clients uh regarding what do we do you know how do we how do we handle this with our 70 and a half plus participants you know do we make them ask for it or do we just you know give it to them unless they tell us not to give it to them and how do we treat that particular payment yeah certainly you're absolutely right chris that it's a provision that i think is still causing hiccups both on the advisor client relationship side and also I'm sure on the operational side for custodians for these accounts because you're right what's what's the what's the default option is there a default option I, I don't think you can presume that across uh, you know a client base of hundreds of individuals taking RMDs what would you elect as the default for them would you assume that everyone wants it because they take the income to use for living expenses? Or would you assume the opposite, that people don't want to take it and they prefer to let their account balances recover and not have the income tax liability? So on our side, from a practical perspective, we've had to make a, a master list of really every single RMD that would have been processed in 2020 and systematically make a note for every one of those accounts and every one of those clients if we plan to take it or not. So as we are meeting with clients, as we're having conversations with them, you know, over Zoom and on the phone or over email, we're denoting really one by one if the client wants the income and needs it for something or if we're going to, to skip it until further notice. So it's certainly something that's added an element of uh, extra planning, uh, time consumption, potentially a distraction from other planning elements, but it can be very important if you're looking at higher net worth individuals, higher asset individuals that have multi-million dollar IRAs, particularly if they're older, the RMD could potentially be a, a major you know, swing element in their financial plan. Um, something that I know that we're looking at as well as other advisors is strategically if a client doesn't need the RMD income for living expenses, 
do you effectively skip the RMD, but instead of having it processed, do a partial IRA to Roth conversion for some amount less than or equal to what the RMD would have been? So from an income tax perspective, maybe things are approximately the same because your tax liability is the same, but instead of just having money come out of the IRA, do you get it into a, a Roth bucket? So for some clients, that, that's something to consider between now and end of year as well. So guys, last question. As you look forward and as the playbook kind of evolves, what do you see in terms of uh, new legislation or fiscal support and any final comments for our audience? Uh, Chris, maybe I'll start with you. Yeah, so I think right now everyone's waiting to see if the HEROES Act passes in the Senate. Um, I mean, it it went through the House. There seems to be a lot of opposition. It would be an amount greater than the CARES Act. I think they're talking $3 trillion. Um, more direct payments or those economic impact payments, as they'd call them. More support to health workers, you know, hazard pay. Um, you know, extending the unemployment enhancement. But I think the one that I'm more interested in is this secure, um, I'm sorry, Savers Act, which um, has now started in the House. And that is an act aimed at helping people rebuild their savings. So I don't know all the mechanics to it. I'm not sure they're all fleshed out, but you would have a temporary period of time where the normal IRS limits um, would be um, enhanced. So um, I think the number I saw was 300% of the normal limit or 100% of compensation. So it's a chance for people when they finally get back to work or they've been an individual that's had to take a CRD, uh, a chance to add back money to their um, retirement plan account. And, and again, it, it sounds great. The timing on it right now is probably not good because I'm, I'm guessing the people that it would help the most are probably the people that are in no position to put extra money into a plan. Uh, they're probably trying to get money out of the plan. But I think those are the things that we, we want to see in the future. How are we going to help people who have had to take advantage of these CARES Act retirement provisions, sort of rebuild their savings for, for the long term. Great. Ed, any final comments from you? I think probably just to reiterate, you know, how I started in terms of acknowledging that this is a very dynamic situation. You know, Chris just mentioned, you know, a handful of things moving their way through Congress that may or may not add even more programs to be aware of. So as advisors, I think we need to be conscious of the fact that what we read or interpreted a month ago could be very different or, or have been modified. You know, even just looking at the SBA website or the programs that are available, such as the uh, Paycheck Protection Program, uh, loan forgiveness, emergency loans, that entire site has been expanded and amended dramatically since the PPP first came out. So for anyone advising self-employed or small business owners that have looked into that program or might be considering that program still, 
if you haven't been to the SBA website recently to check out the new Q&A and, and the new features to make sure that you're on the same page with the information that's presently available. I think that's important. You know, even looking at modifying that program, a bill passed the House on Thursday on uh, May 28th, HR 7010 Paycheck Protection Program Flexibility Act, if you want to take that mouthful, which would modify the, the program uh, another time. So there's definitely a lot out there. I think all the more reason for advisors to, you know, consult with their peers to reach out to those centers of influence to, you know, be in touch with, with service providers like, like Hancock that are providing this type of advice and, and consultation. I think having your uh, ears and eyes wide open, so to speak, is what's going to set advisors apart the rest of the year compared to those who aren't doing that. Agreed. Well, Ed and Chris, I want to thank you both for sharing your insights. It was a very uh, thoughtful discussion. To my audience, if you want to hear more, please subscribe to the Portfolio Intelligence Podcast on iTunes or visit our website, jhinvestments.com, to read our viewpoints on macro trends, portfolio construction techniques, business building ideas, and much, much more. Thanks for listening to our show. This podcast is being brought to you by John Hancock Investment Management Distributors, LLC, member FINRA, SIPC. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speaker, are subject to change as market and other conditions warrant, and do not constitute investment advice or a recommendation regarding any specific product or security. There is no guarantee that any investment strategy discussed will be successful or achieve any particular level of results. Any economic or market performance information is historical and is not indicative of future results and no forecasts are guaranteed. Investing involves risks, including the potential loss of principal.